All right, well, good morning. If you guys want to find your seats. Good morning, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I hope we can do that soon. It is good to gather with you. Great to lift our voices in praise to our God and King this morning. I just enjoy the gathering of the church. What a gift it is to us. Uh, we're going to dive into God's word now and our sermon text uh, today out of 2 Corinthians. And Bethany's going to be reading that for us. 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen through twelve ten. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this both full confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you get gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor, under King Aretas, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for if I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, 
But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity that we have to gather together today. And God, there's so many things going on around the world, even at this moment. And so before we dive into your word, God, we want to pray for Afghanistan this morning. God, we pray for the people of Afghanistan and all that's going on right now. We pray for those here that are, that are reeling and wondering and confused and hurt by what's transpiring. God, we pray for the church in Afghanistan, our brothers and sisters in Christ who, based off some reports, have seen, received letters of threats already. God, would you give them hope and strength? Would you help them to endure and persevere? May the light of your grace, as we sang about this morning, make its way into that place, into the crevices of darkness and the corners there, and call people to yourself. God, we pray for protection over that country and those people. We pray, God, that somehow out of all this difficulty that you would get glory. And God, we also pray for the people of Haiti this morning, who have only 10 years or so ago experienced a devastating earthquake and once again have experienced that. God, would you pray, I pray that you would give them comfort and peace. God, I pray that, that people would be found and, and saved from the wreckage and rumble and be healed. God, we pray that in the midst of so many other difficulties that are already going on there with the recent assassination of their leader, God, I pray that you give them strength and peace. They would find it in you, in the kingdom of God and in King Jesus. God, would you send aid to them? Would you help them to be united together? And again, we pray that the church in Haiti would be a, a beacon of light and hope in the midst of darkness and suffering. God, we thank you that we can bring these things before you, that you're a God who cares. You're a global God and that you care for people from every tribe, language, and nation. And so we lift up these two people groups and nations to you this morning. And God, now as we turn to your word, I pray, Father, that you be glorified in our time, that the name of Christ would be exalted. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word, that you'd help us to see what you have for us this morning, to receive what you have for us this, mor this morning and see it as a gift of grace to us. Bring life and light into our lives today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, most everybody in this room has probably had a job interview or a few. And if you haven't had the pleasure of doing that yet, you will at some point. It's a part of being an adult. But if you really think about interviews, interviews are a little weird, aren't they? I mean, you essentially are sitting in a room, or maybe these days on a screen, with someone you probably don't know particularly well, and spending most of that time telling them about how great you are. It can feel kind of awkward and strange. I mean, you want to appear humble and not arrogant, but also want to be able to talk about your competencies of why they should hire you for the job. There was a study done by some psychologists at Brown University on what they call self-enhancement, or what we would call bragging that reveals kind of a paradox of this boasting. They say that if you brag about your achievements and abilities, people will see you as competent but arrogant. If you are a little bit more quiet about your achievements and abilities, people will see you as warm and humble but less capable. So what are you supposed to do with that? It reminds me of a scene from the TV show The Office. 
where Michael Scott goes to interview for a job at corporate and he's sitting down. David Wallace is the interviewer and he asks Michael to tell him about some of his greatest strengths as a manager to which Michael replies, why don't I tell you about some of my greatest weaknesses? I work too hard. I care too much. Sometimes I can be too invested in my job. To which David Wallace awkwardly replies, okay, and your strengths? To which Michael says, well, my weaknesses are actually strengths. It's a funny scene, right? But it kind of highlights that awkwardness that we could experience in an interview like that, this paradox of boasting. But I actually think it reveals a bit more about something that's really true about us. We don't like admitting real weakness. Maybe it's for fear that it'll undermine our ability to be liked or to succeed or to thrive. Well, today we're continuing on in our sermon series, Old Made New, in the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, a church that he cares a whole lot about, he's fond of, he has a great affection for, but he is struggling with. See, they've been taken in by some so-called super apostles, preachers and teachers and leaders who are tempting them away from the one true gospel and the one real Jesus. And they're doing so with flashy rhetoric and false teaching. These so-called super apostles had seemingly impressive resumes. And man, they were fine boasting about it. They often boast about their accomplishments and their successes. And they malign and ridicule Paul for his suffering and for his trials. And it's influencing the Corinthians they like what they're hearing from these teachers and they're, what they're seeing. And they're wondering, Paul, why aren't you as impressive as they are? I mean, Paul, if you're the real deal, why aren't you boasting of your accomplishments? See, the temptation is to see weakness and difficulty as a sign of failure and the absence of it as a sign of success. No one wants to follow a failure, right? Paul writes this letter to them because they're tempted this way, but can't we be tempted towards the same thing? Not only because we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't like to talk about weakness, that doesn't see it as a good thing, but even in the church. See, Paul writes this letter to them because he cares for them, and by God's grace, the power of the Spirit, this is for us as well. He cares for them, and he's concerned for their soul. And so he writes to them to defend his calling, but not only to do that, but point them once again to their real and risen Savior. Listen, this morning, are you weak? Are you feeling weary right now? Do you feel like a failure at times? Maybe all the time? Are you tempted to act like you have it all together? Do you find it difficult to acknowledge weakness in your life? Man, I know I do. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to lean into this text this morning because in this is a wonderfully freeing gift for you. See, what Paul shows us is that walking in your weakness is the way of Jesus. What Paul shows you is that acknowledging your weaknesses is a good thing. It's a good thing because it's actually the means of more grace for you and more glory for God. So let's dive into our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And may God bless the preaching of his word. This is a long text as you just heard read. And so we're going to break it down into two points. The foolishness of boasting and the sufficiency of grace. Let's look at the first one, the foolishness of boasting. We see this in chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. Let me read verse 16 for us again. Paul writes, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. 
See, these super apostles, they thought they were really wise and that Paul was a fool. And the Corinthians are tempted to think like that. These super apostles have been boasting and the Corinthians are impressed by that. So here Paul is bringing both of those things together, foolishness and boasting. Now he isn't foolish and he actually thinks that boasting is foolish. He tells us that in verse 17. But what we see in these first few verses that what Paul's doing is he's kind of saying for the sake of argument, to make my point, this is what he's going to do. He said, okay, I'll play. I'll play. If you, if you want boasting, if that's what you think you need, then let me boast a little in the flesh. And so he begins with some of the things they would expect. Look at verses 22 through 23 again. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. He's got their attention. He's whetted their appetite. Like they're kind of going like, oh, finally. Like Paul's going to tell us how great he is now. Now we're really going to hear what's going on here. And you would expect at this point, as he's kind of building this up, saying I'm better than all these other people that you've started to follow, that he's going to rattle off all of his accomplishments. That he's going to tell you about all the great things that he's done and that he's been a part of. And he has been a part of some great things. They'd expect at this point that he'd start to talk about how many churches he's planted, how many people he's led to Christ, how many books he's written. If he was writing in today's world, he would say how many followers he has, how many retweets he gets, how many likes he has, how many sermon downloads he's racked up. I mean, you'd expect it to read kind of like a modern day bio on a website or the back of a book or the introduction of a speaker at a conference. But instead, Paul flips the script and he takes his boasting in a completely different and unexpected direction. He says, verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then he says this, I'm talking like a madman. And then he goes in this different direction. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, which basically means he almost died. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, which also was meant for his death. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Basically, I'm in danger all the time. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure of my own anxiety for all of the churches. He's not, he's sitting here talking about a list of great achievements and great victories. It's a list of great trouble and difficulty and trial in his life and ministry. Now, I can imagine at this point that his audience, the Corinthians, who were hoping that Paul's finally going to talk about the big game that he can play are confused. Wait, wait, what? These are the very kinds of things that the other apostles and we are criticizing you for. Why are you listing them out now? Why are you saying these are good things? How are you saying these are good things? But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, jump down to verse 32, at Damascus, the governor under King Eratos, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. See, these false super apostles, they were touting their victories. They were touting their successes. The Corinthians wanted to hear about triumph. But Paul isn't scaling a wall. Paul isn't taking a hill. 
Paul isn't marching in and out of the city in victory because everyone thinks he's so great. He isn't drawing great crowds to hear him speak or getting lots of views on YouTube. He literally had to be lowered out of a window by a group of people in a basket in order to run away. Paul's been called a fool, but he's seeking to show them and show us what and who is truly foolish. So the world he boasts are what he begins with. I'm I'm great. My lineage is great. But Paul recognizes that doesn't honor Christ. And so he says, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In other words, Paul's telling them, if these are the things that make me weak, if these are the things that make me a fool, then yep, that's me. That's me. Listen, weakness isn't sin. Paul's not boasting in his sin. He's boasting in his weakness. Weakness isn't sin. It's not an excuse for laziness. Weakness is about limitation. Weakness is about being created in the image of God, not trying to be God, which is exactly how he can say this and be okay with it. Because Paul knows that the reason he's encountered these challenges, the reason he's encountered these trials of various kinds is because he's been faithful in weakness to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, sometimes it's our very faithfulness to Jesus that leads to suffering and difficulty in our lives. This is a countercultural exercise. It was then and it is now. I mean, you and I, we tend to boast in our achievements, not our weakness. Our weakness is we hide them, we downplay them. If you were asking a friend to write a recommendation letter for you, you wouldn't want them to start off listing off all the things that are hard for you. Most cover letters and resumes don't start off with a list of weaknesses. Why do we do that? Well, because our identity is often wrapped up in what we do. It's wrapped up in what we do more than who we are. It's wrapped up in what we do and where that falls on this sliding scale of boasting and failure, of success and failure. We want to know where we line up, how we line up. But that's not the case for Paul. Paul doesn't hide his weaknesses. He puts them on display. Why would Paul do this? Because God triumphs amid human weakness. God triumphs in the midst of human weakness, which leads to our next section, our next point, the sufficiency of grace. We see this in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 12. Paul has made this clear statement of boasting in his weaknesses in verse 30. Now he continues to speak to another area, another area that these false super apostles, these Corinthian people would have been boasting in and expecting and hoping that he would as well if he was anybody special. In verses 1 through 6, we see Paul speaking in the third person. And he recounts a unique, significant, supernatural experience he had. He has this grand vision of heaven. Now, this is something that he should get recognition for. Like, this has book deal and miniseries written all over it. That's what the Corinthians wanted. They were like, yes, you are a real deal. You are the real deal. Tell us all about it. We want to hear all about it. This is what they wanted their leaders to talk about if they were going to be worthy to follow But that isn't what Paul does. It's not what Paul's point is. Again, he flips the script. He says in verses 5 and 6 that he could boast about this because it's true, but he won't. He doesn't. Why? Look at the end of verse 6. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, I don't want you to think more highly of me than you ought to. 
This isn't about me. I don't want you to be impressed with me. I want you to be impressed with the one I speak of and the one I live my life for. I want you to be impressed with Jesus. Now, Paul could stop there, probably prove his point. By God's grace, he continues on. He takes it a step further. And he shares and shows how God is intimately involved in conforming Paul more and more to the image of Christ. Look at verse 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited and proud and self-important, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul had seen things no one else had seen. He had heard things no one else had heard. And like anyone else, he would be tempted to take those things and make them about himself, to get attention for himself, to become prideful and arrogant and boastful about them. But God cares deeply for Paul, for his life and for his ministry. And so God allows for a trial to come into Paul's life. Paul says it's a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, he never tells us what that is. We don't know what this thorn is. It could be a physical struggle, a mental struggle, a relational struggle. He doesn't tell us. That's probably for our own good. But what we know is is that whatever it was, it must have been really, really difficult for Paul. Because look at verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times. It's likely he prayed even more than that on a regular basis. He's pleading with God to take this away. He's begging him to remove this, to bring it to an end, to bring some relief to his life. Have you ever had something like that in your own life? Something you've prayed for over and over again for God to remove? For God to bring relief of? The Corinthians are intrigued again. Okay, okay, maybe this is the point where he's going to drop the hammer. Like how did he pray and God just showed up and did some crazy, amazing thing here? What, what happens? Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is so upside down from what the Corinthians would want or expect. So upside down from the way that our world thinks. And that's exactly Paul's point. Exactly God's point. See, these false teachers and flashy leaders, they were triumphalists. They were preaching, though, an anemic gospel. One that highlighted the power of God, that highlighted victory, that highlighted being overcomers but they had no category for challenge, no category for trial, no category for weakness. So they had forgotten that death always precedes resurrection. There is triumph, there is victory, but it isn't in Paul and it isn't in us. It's found in Jesus alone. Church, Jesus was triumphant. Jesus is triumphant. But the path to get there was one of humble obedience and sacrificial death before there was glorious resurrection. And he is the one who now says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Grace is often defined as undeserved favor, to be treated better than we deserve. And it is that. It's what allows us to be saved from our sin. We don't deserve to be reconciled to God because we've rebelled against him, but God gives grace. He gives us more than we deserve. He treats us better than we deserve to reconcile us and to bring us in relationship with him. That is part of what grace is, but it goes even further than that. See, it's also like in this verse that this undeserved favor, 
this being treated better than you deserve, this loving generosity from God, it overflows in powerful help from God where and when you need it most. Because that's who God is at the core of his character. That's what Paul's getting at here. He needs God's power. He needs God's presence. He needs grace. And Jesus says it, it's here and it's sufficient for you. Catch it, but he doesn't say it, it was sufficient for you. It will be sufficient for you. He says, but right now it is sufficient in the present. It's all you need. See, I think this is where we need to press in a bit more. All of us have weaknesses. All of us have or are or will go through trial and difficulty in our life. And we can read a verse like this, a passage like this, and we can be encouraged, but we might also miss something. See, we know we need grace, but we are often looking for, as one pastor puts puts it, replacement grace, not sufficient grace. Replacement grace, not sufficient grace. In other words, we believe real grace is the removal of our trial. Real grace is the removal of our weakness. But perhaps the end isn't relief, but grace upon grace upon grace while you're in it. Grace that you couldn't, that you wouldn't seek or get otherwise. See, what Paul's getting at and what God wants us to understand and even believe for our own life is that it's a gift of God to give him this pronounced weakness as the antidote and guardrail to his pride and his arrogance. Listen, all suffering is difficult and trials and difficulty are, are difficult. They're not, they're not inherently good, meaning that they're a result of the fall, the result of sin coming into our world and the brokenness that it brings about in our lives and the world around us. We know that to be the case because we look ahead in scripture and see that when Jesus returns and brings about the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no suffering. There will be no trial or difficulty. But how might it change your perspective? How might it change your perspective if you saw it as an act of love from God to allow various trials and suffering into your life to help you not become self-focused and self-important? Now, I know that some of you have gone through really, really hard things in your life, or you are maybe currently going through really hard things in your life, and we don't always know why that's the case. At any given point in time, three things are always going on. Sin is present, Satan is at work, and God is sovereign. You know what? God isn't surprised by your weakness. God isn't surprised by your trials. He's bigger than all of that. And his word tells us that he will work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But that good doesn't mean it's a promise of an easy, cushy life. No, that good is becoming more and more like Jesus, being conformed to the image of Christ. And one day Jesus will come again. And when you see him in all of his glory and all of his perfection, you will be made like him. And he will make all things new, including you. His grace is sufficient to see that through. His grace is sufficient to bring you all the way home. See, what Paul heard from Jesus and what he's sharing with you is that his grace isn't necessarily the absence of suffering. His grace isn't necessarily the removal of weakness. It's Jesus' presence in the middle of it. Now, I don't say all of this in theory. I've had to wrestle with this in my own life. 
A few years ago, I was going through a really, really hard season in life and in ministry, and I actually went to talk to a counselor to sit down to help have somebody help me work through these things, and he used this text, this passage, to help me. See, I was wrestling with wanting to get it all right, with wanting to get it all right, not fail, not falter. But the reality was I was failing and I was faltering. I was making mistakes. I was letting people down and my weaknesses were on display. They were being spotlighted. Man, I didn't like it. At times it was unbearable for me. But God taught me and grew me in those moments. I learned and I'm still learning. I'm still learning that he really is the only perfect one. I learned and I'm still learning that he isn't calling me to be successful, he's calling me to be faithful. I learned and I'm still learning that I can be faithful by his grace, listen to me, not in spite of my weaknesses, but in the midst of them. More grace for me and more glory for him. See, we have to understand that grace is by nature a response to weakness. The grace is by nature a response to inability. If we think we have it all together, and we don't think we need it. But that's counter to the glorious good news of the gospel, which says to you that you were seeking to go your own way. You had rejected God's good authority. You were or are dead in your trespasses and sins. You were both unable and unwilling to come to God and be made whole. But God came to you. God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to save you from your sin and from yourself. And when you repent, when you turn away from your sin, when you turn away from trying to keep it all together and hold it all together on your own and think you're a big deal, when you turn to Jesus in faith for rescue and redemption, you're confessing how weak you actually are, how unable you actually are to fix your biggest problem. It's the ultimate display of weakness. You know what? In that moment, God meets you with grace upon grace upon grace. So listen to me. Don't run away from Jesus. Run to him. Whatever your weakness is, whatever weakness you're experiencing right now, whatever trial you're going through or will go through, Paul isn't saying it will only be followed by grace, but that grace is given in the middle of it. Weakness is and will be the continuing vehicle of grace in your life. That's why Paul says what he does in the rest of verse 9 and verse 10. After Jesus speaks these words to Paul, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's not advocating for masochism. He isn't saying that he's enjoying suffering. What he's telling us is that he has supernatural joy that's given and sustained by by grace while walking through it. And I love that he doesn't say that he admits his weaknesses. He says he's content with them. He's content with weaknesses, with insults, with various trials. It was freeing for Paul because he came to understand and rest in the truth that he didn't need to prove anything to anyone. He didn't need to impress anybody. He just had to trust God and pursue faithfulness. So if he's going to boast, unlike these false super apostles, he will boast in his weaknesses. Why? Because they show all the more that it must be God who's at work in him and through him. Brothers and sisters, there's a sobering peace that comes when you trust in the sovereignty and providence of God in all of life. 
There's deep freedom that follows when you come to understand that indeed when you are weak, then you are strong. Listen, the end of verse 10 will only be true for you when you come to Christ and anchor your life in his. In his, the one who once hung from a cross, utterly weak, laden with sin, poor and destitute in order to accomplish reconciliation with God for you and who is now strong in resurrecting power to give his grace, to give his power to the one who calls out to him. Are you feeling weak? Are some of you weary right now? Things going on in your life? Are you experiencing limitation? Burdened? Powerless? Maybe you're a mom of young kids and it just feels overwhelming for you. Are you single parenting right now? Dealing with chronic sickness? Have some difficulty in a relationship at work or at home? Maybe you just feel crushed right now, overwhelmed with things that are going on at work or at school or in your family or in life. I mean, can we be honest? Some of us are just tired. We're not getting good sleep. We're not getting good rest. The idea of having to do that seems burdensome for us. Whatever it is, it's highlighting all the more your dependence on Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus isn't asking you to try harder. He isn't asking you to do better. Jesus isn't calling you to be impressive. He isn't calling you to have it all together. He's inviting you to himself over and over and over again to come and find rest for your weary soul. Church, Jesus continues to say to you, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. So come, come to Jesus. Listen, you don't have to be much from the world's perspective to make much of Jesus. God uses weak people all the time. Look throughout the pages of scripture. And when you recognize that he calls and uses weak people to do his great work, then it brings great freedom to your life because your weakness is yet again another opportunity to tell a story of sufficient grace. More grace for you, more glory for God. May we be a church that when weakness becomes apparent in one another's lives, that we listen, that we lean in, and that we point one another back to Christ. May we be a church who can say with Paul, we will boast all the more than gladly of our, gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on us. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Amen.